amazing, man. It's great to worship with you. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. I'm fully aware of the fact that I need to talk faster because you can turn me off. You can mute me. <laughs> you can switch over be watching, you know, uh, some episode of something real, real fast. I, I, I get that. I know that. But I really appreciate your commitment to worship and to being with us today. Let's jump into Luke chapter 20. This just happens to be where we're leaving off. Those of you who are a part of our, our local church family, we've been going through the gospel of Luke for weeks, and this just happens to be where we are today, so it happens to be where I'll preach. Tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, I'll pick up in verse 27, but for now, let's look at verses 20 to 26 and talk about um, God and country. Uh, it's probably good that a lot of us are not in the rooms. Politics gets pretty heated for some of us. Um, probably no more so than my grandfather. There's never been a Democrat alive as passionate as my grandfather was back in the day. It's probably better that he's gone because I don't think he could live through the kind of polarization that we have these days. My, my grandfather loved this, this country uh, very, very much, and he taught me to love the country. I remember uh, being at his house and watching television with him when the conventions would come on, the Republican or the, or the Democrat convention. And uh, I mean, my grandfather would just go crazy uh, about this stuff. He would turn the TV up really, really loud and, and then talk back to it. The politicians would talk and he'd talk back to them. If they said something that he liked, he'd light a cigarette and hoot and holler. And if they said something that he did not like, he would cuss and cuss and cuss. I, I mean, my grandfather was, was way into it. Until the day he died, I never really knew if my grandfather was a Christian, but I knew he was a Democrat, and I knew that he wanted me to be a Democrat, too. Um, I, I don't exaggerate when, when I say that in some ways for, for, for non-believers like my grandfather, politics can become a kind of religion, and I think for him in some ways it was. My grandfather had on his bedroom wall this paper calendar that was already old, but it had all of the U.S. presidents there. And my grandfather would get into, a, you know, some sort of conversation with me when he would want to tell me who was president when something happened, and, and I didn't care. But he wanted me to know who was president, and so he would pull out that calendar, go get it off the wall, and we'd have to start at George Washington and go all the way through all the presidents. Uh, and I think my grandfather lived to see Jimmy Carter. I think that was his last president. Um, it was amazing that, that generation, the, the, the way they loved the country, the way they supported the country, the way they loved their party, but at the same time loved all the presidents. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing to see. Uh, our situation today is very different. And as I say, I don't know what my grandfather would say about it all. I think he'd have some cuss words uh, for, for all of us. But Jesus has interesting things to say in Luke chapter 20 when the question is posed for him. The important thing to remember as we jump into this passage today is, is that when it comes to God and country, you must not give to one what belongs to the other. This is the basic principle. You cannot, you must not give to one what belongs to the other. This is what Jesus is going to teach in Luke chapter 20. I'm going to start in verse 20, so read along with me. Luke chapter 20, verse 20. Watching for their opportunity, the leaders sent spies pretending to be honest men. Remember, Jesus has enemies, and, and they are constantly trying to trip him up, primarily with his word. If they could get Jesus to utter some unguarded word, if they could get Jesus to contradict himself, 
contradict the, the Old Testament law, if they could get Jesus to, to trip up in his word because they recognize that his word is his authority. Understand that? And so they're always trying to get Jesus to somehow uh, make a mistake, find fault in, in his word and what he says. So now, they tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so he would arrest Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know that you speak and teach what is right. They're beginning with flattery. We know that you speak and teach what is right and are not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus saw through their trickery and said, show me a Roman coin. Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, Jesus said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, render to God what belongs to God. So they failed to trap him by what he said in front of the people. Instead, they were amazed by his answer and they became silent. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. It it probably helps to know a little bit about the political situation in Jesus's day. The politics of ancient Palestine were something like you and I could probably not really imagine. Remember that Palestine, Israel, has been taken over by the Roman Empire. Most of the Western world was, was overtaken by the Roman Empire in those days, and the Jews greatly resented that. Remember that the Jews, among all people, were monotheists. They believed that there was one God and that their God was the only God. And so to see suddenly their land taken over by pagans, by, by those who worship many, many, many idols and false gods, that was a deep insult to the Jewish people. On top of that, the Roman emperor called himself divine. He would call himself God. Caesar's Lord, they would say, throughout the empire. They would... They would uh, appoint local governors to, to rule the far-flung reaches of the empire. And, and Palestine, Israel had at that time Roman governors that were appointed. Governors that you know, like, like Pontius Pilate or King Herod. King Herod was an evil, brutal, he was a, a, an insane man. But at the very same time, he happened to be a, a pretty good administrator. He, he knew how to keep the people happy. And so he would launch building programs. He would do all sorts of things to, to take care of the people. He would always provide food and famine and clothing and calamity. I mean, Herod always knew how to keep the people happy. And it put the Jewish people in quite a dilemma. Because on the one hand, they could not stand Roman presence. They couldn't stand enemy occupation. They could not abide the fact that they were no longer running their own nation, following the laws of, of the Lord according to their own integrity. They, they were somehow always controlled by Rome, and they despised it. With that, though, there were parties that would sort of divide up and, and, and form. There were the zealots, and the zealots were those who would absolutely go to war. They would start the war. They would carry arms and always waiting for somehow the spark that, that would start the fire that would burn Rome to the ground, that they wanted to be a part of that. The zealots were fiercely opposed to Rome. 
Now, on the other hand, there's a party called the Herodians. Herodians were very, very devoted to King Herod. They loved Herod. They thought that Herod was actually good for the Jewish people. They thought that he was good for the nation. And so therefore they supported Herod. I mean, with, with full throats, with, with passion. The Herodians loved Herod and everybody else was kind of in the middle. Just understand, in Jesus's day, politics had become nasty, divisive, and volatile. That sound familiar? I mean, Nasty, divisive, and volatile. Now, now, we think that that would describe our day and time, but I don't know if we have any idea how nasty, divisive, and volatile it was on this particular day when the enemies of Jesus want to trap him in what he would say. And they recognize that if you really want to, if you really want to set a trap for a man in public in, in, in what he's going to say, then why don't we just toss him a political question? It's a political question in public. And notice how they warm him up for it. That they say, Jesus, we know that you speak and teach what is right. And we know that you're not influenced by what people think. You know, they're backing you into a corner there because it's really, really hard not to be influenced by what people think when you know good and well that anything you say is about to make a whole lot of people very unhappy. And this is the nature of this question. It's sort of a lose-lose because the question is political. It's sort of like in our day, you can't win. We're so divided. It's so nasty. It's so volatile that whatever you say, you're about to make about half the people really, really angry, which is part of why I'm glad I'm standing in a mostly empty room today, as a matter of fact, to talk about politics. It's probably good that some of you are home. And you're probably, you know, doing me like my grandfather used to do. I, I, I get it. I understand. But can we just talk about what the Word of God says today? Because Jesus actually is brilliant, brilliant when they toss him this live grenade of a question. Now, it has to do with taxes. Oh, everybody hates taxes. I mean, nobody likes taxes. But I'm telling you, you have no idea how much the Jewish people hated taxes. Before the Roman Empire, honestly, most people didn't even need money. They were fishermen. They were farmers. They didn't really even carry cash money. They didn't need it. They could trade and barter their way through their entire life. They didn't even need money. And then the Roman Empire comes along, and now you have to have taxes you have to pay taxes to the emperor whom you despise, and you have to pay taxes with his money that you don't even want to carry. Now, understand something about the money. It's important because in a moment, Jesus is going to say, hey, toss me a coin. The coin is a Roman coin. It has Caesar's picture on it, his picture. Now, just remember, if you know your Ten Commandments, if you know your Old Testament, then you'll know that the second commandment is very, very serious to the Jews. It is that thou shalt not make any graven image. And so for the Jews to have this coin that has this man's face on it, that's deeply insulting. They see that as, as breaking the second commandment. They see that in itself as, as something that should not be tolerated. A simple coin with a human image, that, that is deeply offensive to them. But you add to that that Caesar would include his title right there on the coin. You got his head, and then you got his title, which was always something like Caesar is Lord or Caesar the Son of God. I mean, his title was a claim to divinity. 
So in that one coin, heads or tails, you've probably got at least two different ways of, of blasphemy in the Jewish mind. And so the questions about taxes, they don't like the money, they don't like Rome, they don't like the occupation, and they despise the fact that Rome insists that they pay taxes in order to have more and more and more and more of what they don't even like. So that day, when the enemies walked up to Jesus and they asked this question about taxes, about politics, in a mixed crowd, they have tossed him a live grenade. And they know they've got him. I mean, there's no way out of this. If Jesus says, oh, I think you should pay taxes, understand, then half of his crowd, more than half of his crowd, his Jewish listeners are no longer going to pay any attention to him. They don't want to hear anything else, you understand. If he says you should pay then he's going to be finished. But if he says, no, I don't think you should pay, then all of a sudden the, the Roman soldiers will carry him away. He's now preaching rebellion. If you're setting a trap for Jesus, this is perfect. This is perfect. Except that you're dealing with Jesus, right? So Jesus says, he saw through the trickery, show me a Roman coin Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Now, I like the fact first, I don't know exactly how much to read into it, but Jesus has to say, hey, some, somebody give me a coin. Like, he doesn't have any chains. I, I kind of love that. Uh, so Jesus has somebody produce a coin, and Jesus just calls attention to what they all know. Everybody knows what the coin looks like. So the question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus says, well, show me a coin. Because understand, in Jesus' mind, that coin sort of answers the question for itself. He says, whose name's on the coin? Whose picture's on the coin? Whose money is it? Caesar. I mean, it's the answer, right? It's his picture. It's his name. Caesar's coin. Jesus says, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. That they didn't see that answer coming. That's not the answer they expected. That's actually brilliant. No, what exactly though is is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that it's sort of in line with Old Testament tradition. Actually, the Book of Ecclesiastes talks, for example, about how fearing the king, respecting the king, obedience to the king is is part of your allegiance to God. It's part of what God expects. That's an Old Testament principle. There's nothing new about that. Part of your surrender to God, but part of what you owe to God is a certain kind of allegiance to the existing government. That's, that's not a new thought. And, and Jesus is right in line with that. You, you give to Caesar, you give to the government what belongs to the government. There's nothing that extraordinarily new about that. It's that second part. You, you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, you give to God what belongs to God. Because Jesus does recognize that Caesar, government has a tendency to overreach. You know, the coin says, Caesar is Lord. You understand that's an overreach. And Jesus doesn't necessarily say anything about that, except to say, you just give to Caesar what rightfully belongs to him, but you give to God what belongs to God. So let's talk for a moment. What is it exactly that belongs to the government? What do we owe to Caesar? And we don't have Caesar these days, but we have our own government. We have a president. We have lots and lots of appointed officials beneath him. We have a, a governor in Kentucky, lots and lots of appointed officials all the way down to our local government. What exactly do we as followers of Jesus owe to our government? 
Just a couple of things. First off, I would say we have an obligation to submit and cooperate in all ways possible. In every possible way, we are commanded in Scripture. This isn't just like, you know, a, a, a political message now. I'm telling you, I'm preaching the Bible to you. We are commanded in Scripture to submit and to cooperate with our government in, in all the ways possible. The book of First Peter chapter 2 says this, For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of the state or the officials he has appointed. Fear God and respect the king. This is the word of the Lord, and if you notice, all of this is, is phrased in the form of a commandment. This isn't like you have a couple of options here. You, you submit, you respect. As believers, this is what we owe to our leaders. Now, I can hear you right now. I mean, I can hear my grandfather right now saying, I'm not going to show any respect, you know, for that, you know, and he'd have his own choice words. And some of you do the same thing. I'm, I, I can't respect this president. I, I, I can't respect this governor. I can't respect. And, and on and on you, you go. You want to explain to me why our leaders aren't respectable. You want to explain to me why you can't respect Nancy Pelosi or, or insert your own politician's name right there. And I just want to remind you that this verse doesn't say a word about whether or not they are respectable. We don't respect them because they're respectable. We respect them because as God's people, we are respectful. Understand? It's something about us, not something about them. Now, when Peter writes this verse, understand the king, the emperor is Nero, one of the most vile and wicked emperors in the Roman Empire. It's Nero who set fire to Rome and then blamed the Christians, which then launched the first and, and worst wave of persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. Peter himself was most likely martyred under the, 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 the Roman emperor Nero. And understand, none of that changes this. I know, I know, I'm going to keep preaching, but understand, we still are commanded to submit and to respect in all ways possible our government. This is what the scripture says. At the very same time, we are obligated to challenge the government whenever necessary. Scripture has a long, long, long history of God's people who respectfully and fearfully stand before the king and say, I cannot do what you're asking me to do. Do I need to tell you the story of Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who would not bow, would not bow down? Do you understand? There's this long history in Scripture. The book of Exodus begins with this amazing uh, edict that comes down from Pharaoh that all of the Jewish boys should be killed. But what happens? Those Hebrew midwives refuse. They refuse to obey this unjust command. You understand, Scripture is absolutely filled with people who, who obey in all the ways that are possible, but understand that there are lines that are drawn. And we must challenge the government whenever necessary. And we have multiple ways that we can do this. We live in the United States. We have an amazing freedom to, to, to have a voice of dissent. Don't take that for granted. We can disagree. I can say anything that I would want to say on, on, on Facebook Live today, and I don't have to be afraid of being arrested later. Do you understand? We can disagree. We can vote we can vote. 
It's, it's an amazing privilege. It's an amazing power that not everybody on the planet possesses. You have this ability to vote. You can protest. You can march. You can boycott. You can do all sorts of things. Understand, this is a free country. And as Christians, sometimes we are obligated to call attention to injustice, to unjust laws. And we can disobey. We can disobey. When the law of God is contradicted by the law of our government, we absolutely must obey God rather than men. Isn't that what the scripture says? We can disobey. The very same time, this long, long history of Christian civil disobedience, we've also always recognized that we can disobey while at the same time being submissive and respectful. In other words, we disobey and we accept the consequences of that. I mean, think about the civil rights movement where godly African-American men and women, that they called attention to unjust laws by disobeying them at the very same time that they were thrown into jail. They accepted those consequences, but that peaceful, that peaceful disobedience called attention to laws that were absolutely unjust. And through their submission and at the same time disobedience, they changed the world. Don't think that this doesn't have power. Don't think that obedience to God's law doesn't have power that can absolutely turn upside down the laws of man. I'm telling you, this is what the word of God says. What else do we owe to Caesar? Well, we're supposed to pray. I mean, the scripture says that we must pray for our leaders at all times. Pray for leaders at all times. If talking about 1 Timothy chapter 2, I think it's verses 1 and 2. We're commanded to pray for our leaders at all times. Pray for leaders. I'm telling you right now, some of you have said the name Donald Trump more this week than you've said the name of Jesus. And there's something profoundly wrong with that. Understand? Jesus is the one who has your heart. But honestly, it's, 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 it's a politician. It's a leader. It's Brashear. It's somebody else that, that for you just continues to occupy your thoughts. I'm telling you, why don't you stop just complaining and why don't you stop just, you know, just continuing to run your mouth and continuing to call attention to your displeasure? Your first obligation as a believer is to pray. Pray for our leaders at all times. You should stop and pray. I mean, you're watching the news now, probably now more than ever, and it just gets your blood pressure going. You know, why don't you turn that off sometimes and just pray? This isn't really just an option. I'm not talking about how to manage your stress. I'm telling you how to be obedient to what God's Word says at all times, in all seasons, whether your favorite politician is in office or not, whether the nation is in crisis or not. We are told to pray for leaders at all times. You have an obligation to pray. The amazing part of that in the book of 1 Timothy is that, is that the, the goal for that it's not just so that we can all live in peace and harmony. It's not just so that we can have, you know, nicely paved streets and sidewalks and public parks. That's not the goal. I mean, in Scripture, the goal is always, always the salvation of the world. So in the book of Timothy, we're told to pray for our leaders because that's going to be good for the gospel. A peaceful state of the union is good for the gospel. It's very, very difficult for people to think about spiritual needs when their physical needs are threatened. And so we pray for the good of the nation in which we live. We pray for our leaders by name at all times because this is what's good for the gospel. 
This is what allows the peace and the harmony that allows the church to do its work by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? That this is good for the gospel. So render under Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, but, but then give to God what belongs to God. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. First off, just a few um, words of advice for you. First off, um, don't put strong hope in weak people. And they're all weak people. I, I don't know how you like all the politicians in power. I'm sure you have different opinions like we all do. But I'm telling you, they're all sinners. They're all weak people. And you must not put strong hope in weak people. You put your hope in Jesus. You put your hope in Jesus. Right now, I'm praying with all of my heart that our leaders will make good decisions and guide us out of this crisis. But at the very same time, my hope is in Jesus. I don't trust their wisdom. I'm praying that they get wisdom from above. You understand, I'm not putting strong hope in weak people. I mean, you know, I've had as much difficulty with our government as everybody else. You know, I've tried to renew my driver's license before. I mean, it doesn't always run like a... A, a, a finely oiled machine. You don't put strong hope in weak people. I, I know you're thinking, man, if I could just get my person in power, I, I know, I know, I know. I'm telling you, the next person in power will be just as weak as the present person in power. They're all weak people. You, you, you put your hope in, in Jesus. You must not expect any party or politician to make you happy. I, I don't care what party, I don't care what politician, they will not make you happy. Only Jesus will never disappoint you. He's the only one who's never going to disappoint you. One more thing. Your primary allegiance is already pledged. Your primary allegiance, I'm talking to believers now, is already pledged. It's it's, it's part of the unspoken wonder of, of this little object lesson that Jesus uses in this moment of question. When they say, should we pay taxes or not? And Jesus says, show me a coin. And whose image is on the coin? They say, well, that's Caesar's image. And so Jesus says, well, you just give to Caesar what belongs to him. That's obviously his coin, right? But the important thing for you to realize is um, in whose image are you created? Whose image is marked in you? According to Scripture, we are all created in the very image of God. You bear the image of God. So if we're going to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, understand your allegiance is already spoken for. Your allegiance is already given. You belong to God. He bought you with a price. You understand? You belong to him. And you must not give to Caesar what belongs rightly to God. what I'm saying. For a lot of folks who don't have a lot of strong faith, politics becomes religion. Your favorite news channel becomes church. And your politicians become idols of worship for you. They become idols that you either stand up or or knock over. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you were not created for allegiance to any sort of earthly power or, or party. Your primary allegiance is already permanently pledged. So, uh, just, just, just one last thing. I know that as believers, we're often in distress for the fate of our nation. It really does feel like a nation that once was more unified in following after the Lord is now very, very divided and, and in a lot of ways really slipping back from what seems to have been some sort of Christian heritage. I just want to remind you, 
that if that is true, if America has lost its spiritual footing, it's not because the government lost its spiritual footing. It's, it's not even because they took prayer out of schools or anything else. Do you understand? The government can't backslide. The, the world can't backslide. If there is some sort of loss of position, if there's backsliding, then it's the people of God who have backslidden. It is not that we have to call our government back to God. We have to call God's people back to God. I mean, what I want you to understand is revival in this nation is going to begin with revival in your home. The people you're gathered around this screen right now, you understand, that's where it begins. I promise you, and, and, and please, I, I know how this is going to sound, but, but whatever your opinion, the problem is not the man or woman who occupies the White House. The problem is probably the man or woman that occupies your house. This is where the problem is, and revival begins with you. Revival begins with you. What this country needs more than anything else is for people, individuals like you and me, to give to God what belongs to God. And that means our lives, our first allegiance, our primary allegiance, our whole hearts. So when I looked at the passage this morning and saw that it was Luke chapter 20, verse 20, it was like being tossed a live grenade. I don't know what your political opinions are. I guess in a lot of ways it doesn't matter. I don't know that I care. I'm sure if we were to talk directly and personally, we'd find a lot to disagree on as citizens of this nation. But as citizens of heaven, as believers whose primary allegiance is pledged to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess one day that he and he alone is Lord. You know, when it comes to Jesus, I think that's where we find our unity. This nation is divided and politics is nasty and divisive and volatile. And I'm telling you, only Jesus can bring us together. And it's going to start right now in your heart. Right now, in your home, hopefully ripple out to our whole church, our community, our nation. But it can only start with you. What this world needs, more than anything else, is not a new election, understand? It's a revival that begins in the souls of men and women, boys and girls like you and me. Will you pray with me? And then we'll have a song, one more song. Will you pray with me? Lord God, it is so strange that we worship this morning individually in private homes with screens and phones and devices. It's amazing on the one hand how it seems to sort of bring us together. On the other hand, Lord, it's a reminder that we at present are socially distant. But Lord, we know that by your Holy Spirit you are able to close that distance you're able to unite our hearts, and this morning we unite our hearts together in prayer. We pray for this great nation and all of the nations of the world fighting this virus. Lord God, as citizens of this country, we pray for our president, Donald Trump. We pray for all of those working beside him and beneath him, Lord, that they will have wisdom that comes from you, that they will make wise decisions that will be for the very, very good of all of the great people of this nation. Lord, we pray for our Governor Brashear. We pray, Lord, that he will continue to have a steady hand at the wheel. We pray that he will make good decisions for this good state 
And Lord, we pray for all of those who carry out his, his uh, decisions, Lord, all of our local leaders and those who continue, Lord, to try to make good decisions on our behalf. Lord, we pray for them, that they will be led by you, that they will have wisdom from you. And that, Lord, through them, you will work to deliver, Lord, us from this darkness in which we find ourselves. All of our hope, Lord Jesus, is in you. Lord, for those of us this week who have spent sleepless nights and anxious days in worry, for all of us, Lord, who have flinched every time we've coughed, who have drawn back every time we were accidentally touched by a stranger, for those of us, Lord, who watch the news day after day after day, and it only serves to stir our fear, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would take your throne, your rightful throne as Lord of all, Lord of every nation, Lord of every heart. Pray that you would do what only you can do. Pray that you would set us free from fear, from disease, from sin, from everything, Lord, that continues to cause us to live in such bondage. Deliver us today, Lord God. Unite us as a nation. Unite us as a church. God, I pray for every heart listening to the sound of my voice, Lord, I pray that you would give them perfect peace because of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.